Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm here with returning guest, Bree Walta. She's been on the show a couple times talking about toxic relationships and specifically helping women free themselves from what can be narcissistic abuse, what can be domestic violence, um, gaslighting, all those types of things. And we decided to focus today around talking about some of those factors that keep people stuck um, and lighting it to a, an addiction pattern. So Bree, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. Good to see you, Mark. Yeah, this is one of our most popular episodes because it must be so unbelievably common, right, that people find themselves in these types of relationships. Yeah, it's it's wild. The amount of people that I have reaching out to me on Instagram or people in my circles that have seen me, you know, share my story and just thank me for speaking out publicly about what I went through. I think a lot of people experience this in different varying degrees, and there's a lot of shame and embarrassment around what the situation was, what they allowed to continue, how long they stayed in it, a lot of factors that contribute to why people don't talk about it. But I think, it, I know, actually, it happens much more than you would ever know because people keep it closed behind behind doors. Right. Yeah. So let's just dive right in, right? Like, what are some of those factors that keep people stuck? I keep them in. Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> but what I like to kind of attribute um, or, or use as an analogy for my clients is this concept of it feeling like an addiction, because oftentimes they are so frustrated with themselves for like not being able to fully let go. So they keep going back to the same person or they keep finding the same type of person and they're they're like cognitively aware that that person is not good for them or toxic or dysfunctional or, you know, not serving them, but they can't help themselves, but to go back. So they come with a lot of confusion. So part of my job as the coach is to help them find clarity around why. So what, what is the root underneath the behavior? What is sort of the driving force? And a lot of that work comes back down into our childhood. So shocker, I'm sure you know, as a therapist, um, but we don't find ourselves in relationships with dysfunctional people unless we have some sort of dysfunction ourselves. So a big piece of doing this work and really doing the work seriously is being able to accept responsibility for your side of the dysfunction. I try to really stay away from you know, that one person is the villain and one person is this perfect being that, you know, is the victim. Because not only is there not power in being the victim, but it's also not helpful to just assume that all of the issues were in one person's corner. So if you can see what the dysfunction is that you're bringing into the relationship, you can change your part. And we wouldn't be attracting people who are dysfunctional if we weren't willing to put up with those behaviors for some reason. 
So a lot of it goes back into our childhood and, you know, growing up in some level of chaos, some level of dysfunction, we get really used to what that feels like. We get really used to the unpredictability. We get used to having to sort of hustle for getting our needs met or, you know, only feeling love from external validation. We learn how to, you know, put other people's needs before our own or pick up all of our codependent characteristics and tendencies because it's a matter a matter of survival. And so you really get used to this role that you play in the in the dysfunctional family system and you're experiencing trauma inherently in that because you're not getting your needs met. So whether they're big T traumas, little T traumas, it can be sort of a variety. But we learn in growing up in dysfunction to, to that the chaos is is comforting because it's predictable. So if we're comfortable in chaos, and we grow up thinking that chaos is normal, then we're obviously going to attract that in our adult relationships because that's how, that's the system that we know how to function within. And (laughs) craving chaos is kind of a gross like word to say, but we do subconsciously like create these experiences because we don't know how to like operate in a normal, stable, calm environment. Often if we don't have a million things happening or fires to put out or people to take care of, like we're bored and being alone with our own self and our own thoughts is really, really, really uncomfortable. So chaos in itself becomes this drug. It becomes this, this thing that we get to lean on to avoid and numb our own pain. So if you can attribute the chaos to this, this thing, you know, some people use alcohol, some people use food, some people use drugs, chaos can operate in the same way where it's a distraction and it's a, it's a numbing agent. Yeah. And I imagine that there's a, there's a high to it too, right? Because oh. right, you're living in a chaotic environment. You get to be the hero. You get to save your relationship from like the brink of disaster, right? You get like the phone call or the pleading of someone like, oh my God, I really love you. Don't leave. Like it's so, it's the most magical relationship of my life, right? Yeah. You get those like talking till 4 a.m. in the middle of the night, whispering sweet nothings, right? There's all these other secondary gains that come from it. Oh yeah. The, the, emo- the emotional roller coaster, the highs and the lows, like, I mean, talk about a rush of adrenaline when you get that text from them that you've been waiting for for three days, you know, or like the the relief that comes from like making up after a fight, like makeup sex in itself is a high, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And you can't yeah. have makeup sex unless you're having really big blowout fights. <laughs> um, and just the validation around you know, being chosen by this person in the moment that they decide to choose you. It's like, it's not just an inherently like safe and calm and you know that a partner loves you and respects you. It's like, you're, you're hustling for it. Right. You have to work for it. Right. Which I guess is exciting in some way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and really in that sort of dance that we do within the chaos, you can be cognitively aware that it sucks, but also really comfortable because it's familiar. Mm -hmm. So to understand that like 
there is some reason that you're like, you're gaining something by being in relationships with these people. And typically it's to avoid having to look at your own stuff because when you choose to start detoxing from these types of people and relationships, it opens a lot of space to be with your own thoughts and a lot of space to have to take responsibility for your own actions and to hold yourself accountable. And that's all very foreign if you weren't taught that when you were younger. Yeah, I'm wondering, do you have an example either from your own life or maybe from a composite of some of your clients, those things that come up in the in the silence, right, in the space, some of those demons that the people have to confront? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was like your your textbook rescuer. If we if we talk about the drama triangle and the the roles that we play within dysfunctional relationships, there's there's the rescuer, there's the victim, and then there's the persecutor. And we all have habitual roles, a role that we, you know, typically enter a relationship in, and we can move around the triangle in these roles. But I was the rescuer to a T. And so my narrative was like, it's all his fault. He's the fuck up. He's the one making mistakes. He's the one not doing his work. I'm over here, you know, doing therapy, trying to read all the self-help books, trying, you know, I'm the savior. I was very much blind to my codependency patterns that I was bringing in, my limiting beliefs, my narrative. Like there was not any taking responsibility for, for my stuff. And so by not, being willing to see that I was putting all of the control in his hands to fix quote unquote, the relationship. It was waiting for him to show up or waiting for him to do something or waiting, 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 instead of identifying what it was that I could actually control and change within myself. So that sort of like, woe is me. And I'm always with these men who are emotionally unavailable or in an addiction or, you know, I have to save them. And this is so hard and so exhausting. And like, why does this always happen to me? That was sort of the the thought process around how I entered relationships. Like a feeling of like being cursed or that this is yeah. your fate. You're always going to end up with these like disappointing guys. Yeah. I mean, we hear people say that kind of all the time, right? Like your picker is broken or like you're always attracting like men who need to be saved or who are a project like yeah because that's what I know (laughs) and and before you connect those dots and before you look far enough back into your childhood life to really understand like oh I'm picking emotionally unavailable partners because that's what I grew up with when I was younger that's what I I had to be the rescuer I had to be the responsible one that was just it's I've been doing it so long that it was just like who I thought I was I didn't think that there was a a problem with it necessarily or a way to change it and in unpacking the trauma and just the circumstances that I was raised in I was able to really see like oh okay those were maladaptive behaviors and uh survivor survival skills that I picked up and like I don't need those anymore like I'm not I'm no longer that four-year-old like I'm now an adult woman who can choose <laughs> differently um and in accepting the past and like grieving that too, that's a big part of being able to make make change in your present. 
Yeah, it's making me think, you know, to my story, because I'm, I'm on one side of this where, you know, I tend to, until most recently, right, date women that are maybe on the personality disorder spectrum that are like high intensity, the uh, colloquial term be like the hot mess, right? The girl who's like, you know, super attractive, super sexual, but like really struggles to just kind of function in some ways. Um, I remember one of my earlier girlfriends going home to her house, putting her on a pedestal, right? Then going home to her house and seeing that like her bedroom was a disaster. There's like food everywhere. There's like clothes everywhere, makeup everywhere, like being like, oh my God, where I thought she was this perfect angel. Um, anyway, like, like that being said, right? What it did is it protected me from one, working on my own stuff, like you said, taking accountability for my own actions, for my own success and failures. And it made me actually fuel this like grandiosity where in my darker moments, I thought I was better than the people I was dating, right? I was like, oh, well, they're super hot, but like, at least I know how to like cook food or whatever, right? Like, at least I know how to like get a job. Um, There was this like grandiosity that was being pumped up, but it was also keeping me small because I was trying to solve their problems, which were unsolvable because I'm not them. So I wasn't working on my own. I didn't have to really look at my own stuff and my own insecurities and my own shortcomings because all the attention from me went into my partner. Yeah. It's the perfect distraction method because if they're such a hot mess, you can justify needing to use all of your energy and all of your resources into helping them, right? And we really do convince ourselves that we're trying to help Mm -hmm. when in reality, we're enabling them to stay in their victim role. But if if all of your attention is going there, oh, well, there's nothing left to have to look at myself because it's all them. Like it's, it's an easy distraction method. So when you stop doing that, and have to take accountability, it's like, fuck. <laughs> now, yeah. now there's a lot of space to sit in silence with myself and like <laughs> have to feel feelings, right? There's no longer a distraction to avoid having to feel something because also when you live in that really high chaotic state, you're like in a survival state all of the time. Like there's not time to feel and to integrate and allow yourself to really process something you're just sort of existing you're surviving mm-hmm. right and and you know, to extend it right like the volume of the feelings from the relationship or from the partner just overwhelmed anything that i was feeling mm-hmm. because all my stuff and maybe it's true for you i'm curious but all my stuff was like repressed right it was yeah. quieted it was buried yeah. so i needed a lot of that space in order to and like time and slowness in order to really dig up and and grieve, right? Grieve some things from my childhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think when you grow up in dysfunctional family systems on any degree, right? You can have like the severely dysfunctional to like something that maybe didn't look dysfunctional on the outside, but caused trauma in some way. You get really good at compartmentalizing your shit. It's like, and often you're so busy taking care of everybody else right? That there's not actual time when you're younger for what you need or even how to put language to what you need. When I started my sort of unveiling process journey around my stuff, like actually being able to identify how I'm feeling with words was very challenging. So I, with my clients now, I I use the feelings wheel. Are you, you're familiar with the feelings wheel? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it like blows your mind wide open. If you've never had words to describe other than I'm fine. Like that's the codependent, like perfect line. It's like, I'm fine. I don't need anything. 
I'll take care of you. I'm fine. Right. Yeah. It's like either you're fine or you're tired. Yeah. <laughs> you feel all oh, tired, you know? Yeah. Long yeah. day. Burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think bringing awareness into just that alone um, was a pivotal part of my recognizing that like, maybe I'm not fine. Maybe there are feelings that are coming up that I should actually try to learn how to sit with, which was a whole, you know, experience in and of itself. Totally. Yeah. And, and I think you named grief. I've also seen it in myself in the work that I do, like anxiety, fear, right. Um, internalized shame, regrets. Yeah. The other ones that you see come up and I'm, I'm trying to name these so that if there's a listener there, they might be able to identify a blind spot, be like, Oh, wow. Maybe I am grieving. Maybe I am ashamed all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised at the amount of anger that I was uncovering. There was anger, there was shame, there was um, frustration, there was embarrassment, there was like a sense of hopelessness in, in how is this ever going to change? Like, it's almost like once you start unpacking this stuff, it just, it's like Pandora's box. It's just, you just keep pulling it out. Like it just <laughs> keeps coming and it can get overwhelmed. It can feel really overwhelming. Yeah. So we got to move to our first commercial break, but when we come back, I want to talk more about that Pandora's box thing, because I see that's true in a lot of trauma work is once you pop the bubble, it gets kind of dark for a while because all of a sudden the floodgates are open. Um, so if you're listening, hang on in there. I'll catch you on the other side of the commercials. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark com. Now, back to From the Ashes. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Brie Walta and we're talking about detoxing from toxic relationships. And we mentioned before we went into the break that once you kind of start feeling your feelings, once you get some of that space, often, at least it was true in my experience, sounds like it was true in yours, that a lot of negativity and intensity comes up. For me, it was a lot of grief. It was a lot of rage, a lot of resentment. And a lot of pain, ultimately, that feels very overwhelming. It's something that I had buried for literally my entire life. So I'm curious what your experience was and your thoughts around what someone might do in that situation when that box is open and they are starting to starting to bubble up. Yeah. I love the phrase of detox in regards to this, because if you've been through a detox before, whether drugs or alcohol or um, another form of detox, it's really uncomfortable. Like all of your your whole coping mechanism was just taken from you and you are like this raw being that doesn't know how to like operate in the world everything feels tender everything feels magnified because you've been so used to numbing it you've been so used to packing it down so when you start to release the chaos which is the drug right it is this way of dissociating from reality. It's the way that we numb our pain or avoid our pain. When you take that away, you start to have to sit in all of that uncomfortability and seeing your part in things and seeing the trauma that you have, seeing how your past is being replicated right now. It's, it's painful as shit. And if you don't have a good support system around you, a therapist, friends, all of the above, it's really easy to slip back into a relapse, right? This is where we see people who start to reach back out to their ex or start to stalk them on social media a little bit just to keep tabs, just to like get a little hit of some crazy so that they can avoid looking at them themselves again. And it's so normal. I want to just kind of normalize that period of, of going back to what you know, because it's hard as you're speaking about to like, look at trauma and to look at your side of stuff. It brings up all these feelings that are foreign. And so a lot of times, and it was true in my case as well. It's like, I hadn't really felt anger before. Like I didn't know how to experience that and not feel like it was going to be all consuming or like take me down forever. Like it was, it was like this big, scary monster. And it was like, avoid that at all costs. Like you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be okay. You're supposed to be perfect. It's like, why all of a sudden is this other entity like trying to come in? So being, being comfortable, like letting it be expressed was was a really hard process for me and learning how to allow myself to actually feel that took a long time mm-hmm. was that true for you too with with anger yeah so for me there's a great there's actually a buddhist thing um Chokum trumpa talks about two forms of anger there's like a hot anger and a cold anger mm-hmm. and my anger was so cold that i never experienced a hot one and cold anger is like you know, cutting people off, um, being grandiose. Grandiose was a big one, superiority, elitism, like pushing people away, like dissecting people very like, you know, in my mind of like, oh, here's everything that's wrong with like X, Y, and Z, a lot of contempt, a lot of resentment. Um, 
But when I was really going through it, I, for the first time, really experienced hot anger, which was like that blood boiling rage, like almost like murderous instinct. And it scared me. It really scared me because I just, exactly what you were saying, it was so intrusive. Like I couldn't turn it off. And it felt very much um, out of control. And of course, for me, underneath that was a lot of pain. But that anger experience was um, was really disturbing because I didn't think I had the capacity and to have fantasies about like hurting people. Obviously, they never acted on it, right? But like, or like yelling at somebody or breaking something like that kind of um, explosive anger was was intense because I always prided myself on someone that like I didn't do that, you know, I didn't have that in me. Oh, so we have a minor technical difficulty. Um, so we'll keep chatting. So something else that was true in my story was looking at grief, um, which I, I think you've, you've talked about, this idea of grieving like what I didn't get in my childhood, um, grieving those needs that weren't met, um, also grieving the fact that, you know, I, I did have like a um, somewhat abusive upbringing and that nobody stopped it or no one like stood up um, with me. So these are things that I had to go through. And, and that was a feeling that is, is still, if I'm being honest, very uncomfortable for me is to feel grief and to really acknowledge the fact that something is lost because I always want to feel powerful. Um, I always want to feel like I have control. I always want to feel like I know, I know what I'm doing. Um, and grief is like really acknowledging like, Hey, this thing is, is gone. This thing is dead. Yeah. The grief that comes from leaving and trying to heal from these types of relationships is really layered and really nuanced because oftentimes if you've decided to leave and you've decided that you're not going back and you're starting your healing journey, you're, you're having to let go of the person, you know, who they were in your life, the, the role they played, the time they took up, however many years or months that you've, you spent together. And you also are grieving this, this hope that you had that it was gonna get better. I attribute this hope to something I've, I've termed potential land where when things get bad in a relationship, we dissociate to the potential land and we live there because there's hope there. And it's more, it's comforting to think that there's still a possibility that they will show up or that it will change or it'll get back to the way it was. And so part of you is attached to that place. So when you finally decide that the relationship is over and you know, you're not moving forward with that person, you're grieving the hope on top of grieving the person. And then to your point, like once you start getting into your, your inner child work and your childhood work, you're grieving what you didn't get in childhood. You're grieving maybe the parents that you never had or the mom you wish you had, the dad you wish you had. Like the healing process does get darker before it gets better in a lot of in a lot of instances. And some people can't sit in that uncomfortability for the length of time that it takes to finally feel the relief. So going back to the detox analogy, it's like if you detox for five days and you need two day, two more days to get like, start to feel sort of on the upswing, but you just can't handle it. You revert all the way back down. And that's it. That's 
not something to be ashamed about. That's not a bad thing, quote unquote. It just is. So when I work with clients who keep going back, it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. We just need to build your capacity to sit in the uncomfortability and your capacity to know what you want and to be in reality and not be like still clinging to the hope. And, and how can we give you the skills to be able to make it through that really, really challenging and uncomfortable period of time? Yeah. So when I hear this, I think of it as I've been playing with recently because a theme that's come up a lot of my men's groups is being a victim, right? Mm-hmm. And I think of the word empowerment. And I feel like what you're talking about and have talked about is like the, the darker side of empowerment of like to fully be empowered, you have to take responsibility, not just for your own healing, but also your part in it, yeah. right? Like that's true empowerment. It's oh, not yeah. just only the positive of like, yes, I can do it, right? Yeah. It's also like, oh shit, I might've done that, you know? Um, and I think that's, that was very hard for me. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to really embrace like the 360 view of being truly responsible for their own life, right? Especially if they were a victim of abuse, right? Or they were victimized by this person. Like that can be true. And there's yeah. also responsibility there. And that's a, that's a tough paradox to grapple. Oh, yeah. You can be a victim of something and you can choose to not stay in victim mentality mm. about it. So, you know, we're not discrediting that you were hurt in the process of whatever it was. But what you get to choose in your healing is how to identify your part, change whatever you can change, and then change your narrative around what that means about you. Like this, the fact that I went through this traumatizing relationship doesn't mean that I like don't know how to pick men and am doomed for life and am a failure, whatever, you know, whatever the narrative is. It means that I was working with what I had. Like I was using the skills I had at the best of their capability until I learned new skills. So trying to drop like the shame and the, it's easier to fall back into that victim place, but to, yeah, to your point, to be truly empowered, it's like, you're taking ownership for the good and the bad. There's no, you're it's radical acceptance of yourself and your actions, which is a big responsibility. It's a big responsibility. And I've found it, in case what you what you experienced, I found it to be kind of like a looking glass moment that like once you go through, you can't go back. No. <laughs> you know, um, which colors every future moment. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yes, is, is like a bittersweet thing, right? Because there's still times in my now relationship, which is a healthy relationship. And there's times when I'm like, God, it'd be so much easier to just like say something passive aggressive and make it his fault. You know, it's like, no, I have to share the story that I'm making up in my head. We have to talk about it and have that moment of uncomfortability. And I know that like, that is the healthier way. And that will actually lead to real resolution. But there's still part of my brain because I was conditioned for so many years of being passive aggressive and not speaking my feelings or my needs. Like there's still part of me that's like, can we just go back there? <laughs> just for a yeah, minute. Can I just like sit in judgment for a while and just like leave you a post-it note or something, you know? Yeah. 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 So yeah, you're right. There is really, there's no 
once you've committed, there's no like going back because that way of being, even though it may feel tempting in the moment, is still incredibly painful. And all of the associations you have with the relationships that, you know, transpired through that behavior, it's like, it's, it's not worth it. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, to go back to the addiction metaphor or something too, it's like, if you fully admit that you're an addict and that you're powerless over whatever your substance is, yeah. you might relapse, you might use it again, but it won't be as good because you know that it's not good for you, right? Like, like, you know what it causes, Yeah. even though you might try to suppress that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of fear around naming things and around taking ownership because it, of course it's easier to blame somebody else, but also in blaming them, it's like, then they're the only person who could fix that, which actually puts you more out of control in people like us that want to be in control of everything. Like that's actually the, this like less um, controlling option. <laughs> like taking responsibility gives you power over how to, how to navigate your life. What, what story you're going to continue to write or not write. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think one thing that I, that I had to do during my recovery process through a lot of this was not take responsibility for the other person, but take responsibility for how I dealt with it. Yeah. And some of that meant accepting powerlessness, right? I remember, you know, the metaphor that my um, therapist used was like, look, you're probably never going to climb Mount Everest, right? Like, I'm just not that into it. I'm not that, I'm literally not that strong enough. I don't have the skills. I don't have the abilities. I take responsibility and avoid Mount Everest. Right. And that was some of my relationship is like, I, I am powerless to the chaos that is coming from here. Mm-hmm. I need to lose the fantasy that I can change it, that I can fix it. That if I just did X, Y, and Z, if I just did ABC, it'd be so much better and be like, you know what? I need to just get out of this. Yeah. Right? I, I'm not equipped. I don't have the right gear to be here, you know? And it doesn't, maybe this is more of like a, a egoistic or maybe even masculine thing where it's like, I had to admit like some level of weakness mm-hmm. of like, I can't, fix this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I was also under the illusion of like that, like having to accept that I allowed him to take advantage of me. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I was mad for a long time about, you know, the various ways that I was being used, so to speak. And it's like, Oh, then I had to take responsibility for like, I should have been setting boundaries and mm-hmm. I should have been you know, naming and claiming my space and my resources and all the things. And so I can be upset that he was doing that, but like he was crossing, there was nothing, there was no line for him to cross. He was just taking advantage because it was there. Mm-hmm. So taking responsibility for, for that was a really tough pill for me to swallow. Where it's like, oh, okay, I had responsibility in, in the perpetual being used. Right. Like you could have stopped it. You could have at least slowed down. You could have always gotten out. Yeah. Right. There, I'm sure there were like hundreds of thousands of exit doors. I right. mean, red flags were waving <laughs> like, like I was at a carnival, but I wasn't ready to see them yet. And so that's another part of like when you're going through this process, it, hindsight's always 2020. It's always like, how did you not see that? It's like, because I wasn't looking through the glasses you're looking through right now. <laughs> I wasn't ready. Yeah. And you, you were, you remember, you were high as shit, right? Yeah. Like you were like flooded. Um, so we're going to move into our final commercial break here. Um, when we come back, you mentioned that you're in a healthy relationship, which I'm so happy to hear. I'm sure some of our longtime listeners are probably happy to hear as well. 
Um, I want to talk about what it's like to date someone who doesn't exhibit these patterns and what that process might be like, you know, kind of moving down the road to recovery. So if you're listening, hang on in there. We'll catch you on the, on the other side of the break with our final segment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot, teachable.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the final segment of the show. In this segment, we're going to talk about what it's like to date someone who doesn't exhibit these patterns. And I was sharing with Bree during the break that I had to go through a fair amount. I'm going to say three, maybe four, like two or three months of relationships with people uh, that were a lot calmer, a lot more grounded before I found the person I'm with now where I was able to actually tolerate being with someone that's grounded because I had those pulls back to the chaos. I was, I would start chaos. I would create drama. Um, it was very difficult for me to like settle into being in a relationship with someone that is a lot more secure and stable. Was that, is that in your experience as well? Similar. So I, I can relate to the, to the, like comparing the now relationship to the then relationships, um, it's like night and day. And what happened for me when I exited my most recent pretty toxic, very toxic relationship was it was so intense. There was so much insanity that came with the aftermath of the breakup that I think I got like flooded or like burnt out on chaos. Like I, it was the first time that my body was like, this is the max. Like we are, we are at full capacity and like, this is not working anymore. So I joke. And if they, if you've listened to my previous episode, I talk about like the bitch slap that I got from the universe that was like, we're going to give you 
the worst possible exit situation for this relationship so that you can see everything that you've been looking or turning a blind eye to for four years. So at the point where I was even wrapping my head around dating again, I was like, I need something that's not that. (laughs) And so where I found myself kind of slipping back into my chaos, like drug is through work and through like taking on and putting more things on my plate than, than I need to. Um, so it just sort of like shifted from my relationship over into, into that. So I have to be mindful of that even to this day of like, Oh, if I'm starting to get, create anxiety for myself. It's like all self-induced. Like I can, I can pull that back. Um, but as far as the relationship, I'm like, I need someone who's very solid <laughs> right now. Yeah. I was just unbelievably bored. I don't know. Yeah. Like, and I think for me, the, those, how do I say this? When I was in the chaos, I didn't even notice to secure people. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. There would be women that I'd be like, Oh, I don't know who is, I don't recognize her. I don't know who she is. Maybe she's boring. Maybe she's like, whatever. Right. Like they was like blend into the background. Yeah. Um, so it was, it actually was a lot of work for me to build up like attraction mm-hmm. to security. Yeah. Because all that wow and all that high that you've talked about, like, yeah. isn't there. Yeah. And that was what I was attracted to for better or for worse. I mean, not for like for worse, right? Um, yeah. It was difficult for me to be able to lean into some sense of security and not just like push the person away because of stories I told about them being boring or being lame or not having a lot going on or whatever, right? Like, because again, I just at that point still don't want to look at my own stuff, right? Like, I was trying to get all my stimulation from them, not. Yeah. From myself, I wouldn't take responsibility for bringing excitement into my own life. Yes. Oh my God. So the part, the partner that I have now, we actually first knew each other ten years ago, and we worked together at a restaurant for a very brief period of time in between, like transitioning from living in Fort Collins because that's where I went to school, um, down to Denver. So it was like a maybe a three month period, and. Um, he, so I was familiar with him and, and the way that we got reconnected was through, um, hinge. And so he like saw me on hinge and sent me a message and was like, Oh my God, Brie, like, it's so great to see you again. Like, I wanted to thank you for a conversation that we had where you like, were pretty instrumental in helping me stop smoking. And I was like, first of all, the opener, you know, I'm like, okay, tell me more. Cause I, I like recognized him. But it wasn't, um, he. I didn't hold memories associated to him like he was for me. And the more that we got to know each other again and like start dating, he was like, yeah, I asked you out then and you like shot me down. And I was like, oh, shit. I like blacked that part out, Mark. Like I, I honestly, honest to God, don't remember that. And we joke because at the time that I was working at that restaurant, I was chasing this emotionally unavailable guy that I was like on again, off again with for like four years. I was so distracted and consumed and like, like chasing the high, you know, it's like, Oh, today he likes me. Oh, he doesn't like me right now, but I'm going to get it back. You know, like it was, I was so preoccupied that, that my partner now like wasn't even, like you said, just faded into the background. (laughs) It's wild. What are, what we're literally attracted to. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, so let me ask you this, because I think it's important. How, how do you talk to your current partner about the past 
and the past habits. Yeah. Right. So mine was a little bit more public, I guess, because of what I do. So I am a relationship clarity coach. So of course, like what you do for a living comes up on the first date. So not everybody might disclose this in the first meeting, but um, we talked about what I do. We talked about how I got into it and I, you know, was not, not revealing a ton of the deep trauma and everything, but there was, there was surface level enough information for him to understand it was a bad situation. So being able to like feel into how he was receiving that information was really cool because first of all, he was listening. Like there was active, yeah, check that out. <laughs> active listening and active <laughs> participation in the conversation, which seems like it should just be a no brainer. But when someone is making eye contact with you and asking questions and like, you know, you can tell when someone's listening and when someone's like waiting to say something, there's a big difference in, in what that feels like. Um, and so to experience that, I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> that's my role. I'm the one that's always <laughs> listening. And so it challenged me to receive. And that's been a big part of my healing in this relationship is learning how to receive and knowing that it's okay for me to also need things and take up space and be the one that's comforted and not always doing the comforting. Um, I forgot your original question. <laughs> I go off on a tangent. Oh, no, I, th I think it's, I think you answered it, right? I, like I'm just relating. I have the exact same problem. This is like literally what I talked to my therapist about yeah. last week <laughs> is working on how to receive, yeah. you know, um, I don't actually know, but I, I have a lot of polyamorous friends, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm monogamous, but I have polyamorous people. And they always say, hey, you know, one person can't meet all your needs, right? Which I agree. But really what I feel, I'm like, what needs? Like, like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, why would I go to a person to meet a need? It doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm trying to get like one person into my life. I don't, I'm not trying, I don't have uh, all these needs that I need multiple people to need to meet, yeah. but maybe I do, right? Like maybe I actually do. And it, they're just really buried. So this is like a current growing edge for me is figuring out like what a relational need actually yeah. is for me. I'm yeah. curious if that was part of your journey or what you might say on that. Yeah. One of the most eye-opening exercises that I did was identifying my values and my uh, wants or my needs and my wants in that order. And when I was given this exercise <laughs> similar to you, I'm like, I don't have needs. Like, I don't know. What do you, what is, what, am, what am I supposed to write? Like, like how do I, I need to eat? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and and values, I'm like, it literally was the first time I'd ever put thought into any of those things. And it was mind blowing to come up with a list. And I'm like, oh, and as I wrote down my values and then what I actually need in a relationship, like my love language and how I need to be, uh, I need communication. I need like honesty. I need all of these things. I was like, wow, I'm a pretty cool person. Like <laughs> it really it really, I was like, I would hang out with me, you know, <laughs> it was the first time I had seen myself quote unquote, like categorized in all of these different ways. So when I started dating, when I finally felt like solid enough in what I deserved, it was like the first time I ever had a bar to, to measure someone against. So going into conversations, like very aware of like, okay, I really value 
fitness and health. So I really need someone who like also that's a big part of their life. They eat well, they like to go to the gym. Like that's not shameful or whatever, because if you don't find people who share your values, you're going to be butting heads constantly because you both operate in two different ways. So it's, it's not right or wrong, right? My value of health is not better or worse than someone's value of like family time or whatever. It's just different. So to find somebody where your values align makes relationships so much more easeful. There's always going to be effort that goes into relationships, but they don't have to feel hard. My view of relationships forever was like, they're hard. They're hard. And I'm inevitably like going to feel like shit. going to feel like I'm not doing something right. So to be with somebody where it's just, we just flow. Like there's just not, there's not a lot of resistance in how we operate day to day and how we like to spend our time. So that makes everything else so much easier where it's not just constant Mm -hmm. conflict. Yeah, I love that you're bringing it down to the values level because I think in, in dating advice that I've gotten in the past, it's like surface level. It's like, make sure you like to do the same things, right? Yeah. Make sure you like, I don't know, like the same music and you like like the same TV shows and that you also like, if you know you play golf, she also plays golf. Don't you want a girl that plays golf, right? And that's like, I think in some ways way too limiting because you're never going to find someone that's like a carbon copy. But I love that you're bringing up values. Like if so, someone has a, health and fitness value. Yeah. Maybe you like the gym and he likes to run or something. Right. But there's a, there is that connection there. And it means that when you come to those hard decisions in life, especially if you want to start a family, which there's a lot of them that come all at once, um, you'll be on the same page with how you evaluate difficult choices. You know? Yeah. I take my clients through that exercise in like a filter system. So it's like the values are the most important. If somebody meets enough of your values to get through to then seeing if they can meet your needs, then they get through to see if they can meet your wants. But oftentimes we're choosing backwards. Like I want somebody who can cook and who has a beard and drives a nice car. Right. And so you choose people like that instead of, and you know, they might have those things, but they also don't have any values that align. (laughs) And so then you like are beating yourself up of like, why, why is this so hard? Why is this not working? It's like, because you chose based on things that don't matter as much. Right. It's like, but have you seen his beard though? You know? <laughs> got a great beard. Yeah. <laughs> we fight all day, every day, but he's got a great beard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're moving towards the end of our show here, Bree, but I know you mentioned that you have a coaching program that's opening up some slots. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I offer group uh, coaching as well as individual coaching. My individual coaching is on a wait list right now, but I am opening another group at the end of August. So it's a 12 week container and we meet weekly over Zoom for 90 minutes. There's also individual sessions. We have a community support platform where I do spot coaching as well. And so there's access to me in between sessions to really help those in the moment sticky points, right? When he reaches back out and you're like, do I respond? What is this? He's promising me the world, you know, to be able to bounce that against some reality, someone who can show you, you know, be a backboard for you is really important. So that wraparound support is one of my favorite parts of of the group. Um, 
runs for 12 weeks and yeah, that's, it's kind of a mixture of process, talk processing, as well as energetic work. And um, we do the guided visualization, the cord cutting. If you have listened to the way back episode that we talked about cord cutting, um, that's still a part of my offerings. So I like to weave in the spiritual practices and the energy clearing practices along with, you know, bringing the cognitive awareness around what, what is happening. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic program. And I love the group format because just as we were saying in the beginning of this episode, so many people think that they're alone in it or there's so much shame or that they can't talk about it. But I imagine just being in a room or a Zoom call of other women that are in it or have just got out of it is unbelievably powerful. The most beautiful healing that I see in the group is when a, a woman is sharing and another woman is like, oh my God, me too. Like, nodding along or like writing in the chat, like, I feel you girl. Like I I'm there with you. Like I see you. It's so empowering to know that you're not the only one and that you're not crazy. Like all of the clients that I work with feel crazy on some level. And so to know that like, you're not crazy, you're just being manipulated. (laughs) And there's a way out of that. There's hope to get out of that. So to see people at maybe different points of the journey Um, and then for me to be able to share and coach from a place of having moved through it is really helpful for them to, to know that it's possible. Great. So if people want to sign up, where should they go? What's your website, Instagram, all that? Yeah, they can go to my website is briewalta.com and that's B-R-E-W-O-L-T-A. On Instagram, it's lucid living with Brie and on either of those platforms or pages, they can sign up for a free exploratory session. And that's always how I start and how I um, get people into the group is I want to make sure they have a problem I can solve and that they're going to be an appropriate fit for the group. So that it's a 60 minute session and it's free. um, So they can find the link to schedule that there as well. Fantastic. Yeah. If you're listening and this is, as any of this resonates with you, call Brie. She's an expert in the field and a fantastic resource. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you all next week. Another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.